Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Shannon Adair, and I'm the Director of Client Success at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years of navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, we have special guest. My name is Jamie Hummingbird, and I am the Chairman of the National Tribal Gaming Commissioners and Regulators. Also with us today. My name is Sean Topchi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Connectify. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Jamie, we're really excited to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Can you get things started by giving us a little bit of a background on yourself and also your time as a gaming commissioner? Yes, thank you, Shannon. And I've been doing gaming regulation in Indian country for approximately 30 years now. I have started serving with my tribe, the Cherokee Nation, back in 1998 as the gaming commission director and oversaw the growth of our gaming operations and our regulatory environment over the years to include up to 14 different gaming operations, as well as up to 63 tribal gaming regulators under my department. Starting in 1998, I was able to really get on the ground floor of the development of class two electronic gaming, served on two NIGC advisory committees, one in 2001, to review and revise the minimum internal control standards, and in 2005 to establish technical standards for class two gaming. Been able to testify before Congress on a couple of occasions, uh, all talking about the state of regulation in any gaming in Indian country. And since 2006, I've served as the chairman of the National Tribal Gaming Commissioners and Regulators Association. That's an incredible background and experience. Uh, Jamie, for kind of the more operational compliance folks, who are on the casino side, or maybe we've even been on the commercial side. Can you explain the role of the Tribal Gaming Commission in a little bit of detail for people who may not be as familiar as with what the expansive responsibilities of the Tribal Gaming Commission is? In many ways, Tribal Gaming Regulatory Authorities, or TGRAs for short, TGRAs are really no different than any other regulatory body out there, whether it be state or federal. We for lack of a better term, or to just apply a generic label to what it is that we do, we are operating as essentially consumer protection agencies, if you will. We ensure that all of the games are operated fairly, that the public is entitled to a fair gaming experience, and that probably most importantly for the tribal regulator out there to make sure that the tribe is the sole beneficiary of all the gaming revenues produced by our operations. Now, that's a very broad net, if you will, to cast, but underneath that, we have a lot of different and varying activities, some of which are very very obvious to the casual observer, but some of which are not. We do oversee all the gaming activities, whether that be approving the games that are offered within our establishments. We look at the promotional and the marketing activities that go along with the operation of a casino. We license individuals that operate and work within those facilities. And sometimes the the extent of those licensing 
operations go not just to the people that you would expect, such as the dealers and the cashiers and people of that nature, but also going into what some call the non-gaming areas, depending on the regulatory structure of the tribe and the jurisdiction. So they may look at individuals that operate in retail, in hotel, in food and beverage, a number of different capacities within the operation. So we do have a varied coverage when it comes to licensing. And the same applies to vendors, gaming vendors, as well as some non-gaming vendors, depending on, again, the regulatory system that's established by the tribe. And we're also called upon to audit, whether it be financial audits or compliance audits. We are tasked with responsibility of making sure that the operation stays within the compliance rules and regulations, as well as the internal control systems that are established by the gaming authority and those adopted by the gaming operation itself. And one area that is probably not as well known as our, our other activities is we are responsible for ensuring the public health and safety of everyone that sets foot within our gaming facilities, whether it be a patron or employee. We look at whether or not the operation is built to code, it's operated up to code, that the amenities and the offerings that are provided within that facility meet the requirements for that respective activity, whether it be hotel, food and beverage, just general safety issues out there. So those, there are some things that we are responsible for in that area that most people don't know, as well as the responsibility for ensuring a fair and honest gaming environment. That also has an element of responsible gaming that goes along with that, that we are responsible for ensuring that the tribes and the operations do what they can to protect the players and ensure that they are not being overly enticed, if you will, to gamble beyond their means. So there, there are some things that we do that a lot of people don't realize that we have within our, uh, I can't think of the word. Purview. Maybe your scope. <laughs> yeah, within our scope and our responsibilities that, that each tribe has, no matter what state you're in, we all have these same level of responsibilities and we have that responsibility, not just to our tribe, but to the general public as well. You said there that you guys aren't much different from state gaming commissions, but it almost seems like there's a larger overarching responsibility than maybe that a state gaming commission has, especially as you're talking about bringing in departments like it sounds public safety risk management in terms of physical health and risk management. I, I, one thing I think I've also noticed with tribal gaming, obviously feel free to, to dis disagree, and this is with no disrespect to state regulators, is that there seems to be an ability to be a little bit more agile with tribal gaming commissions as new products and services arise or new things come on the horizon, new risks present themselves. In my experience, the tribes can be a little more agile in collaborating with operations. What has your experience really been with that? It is. It, hopefully, we have those situations out there where the tribes <clears throat> act as one, act as a more cohesive unit where you have a better relationship between the operator and the regulator, particularly for those reasons that you're talking about, being able to respond to market changes, to technology changes, to things that may not be as flexible in the state regulatory environment. Tribes do have a little bit more flexibility when it comes to the type of response that we're able to provide just because 
we have the ability to not only set our own statutes, but our own regulatory processes. The processes that we go through uh, may not be as cumbersome as those required by a state. But depending on the tribe, the Tribal Gaming Regulatory Authority itself may be able to respond very quickly and adopt regulations or revise regulations to accommodate a particular change, whether it again be market driven or technology driven. The processes that we go through will depend largely upon what the tribe itself adopts, depending on how structured the tribe wants the rulemaking process to be. It could be where the tribe has a, an, an Administrative Procedures Act type approach to it, where you promulgate a proposed regulation, ask for comments, being able to respond to comments and then adopt regulations later. That depending on the tribe, that process may extend 30, 60, 90, a little bit further, depending on the process itself. In others, the process could be as simple as 20 or 30 days. It could be, be very quick sure. uh, in responding to those types of things. So we do have, I would say, more flexibility when it comes to not only responding, but adopting the type of regulation that is out there or what is needed because the technology that we're looking at or a new practice that we're looking at might be more efficient, might be better. And we have the ability to really stay on top of things and make sure that we're putting the best regulation out there. So it sounds like the tribes do have a little bit of ability to flexibly execute and decide length, complexity of those processes, how much red tape there is going to be, essentially whatever works for that organization size and their scheme. No, that's fantastic. There's an, there's another layer that I guess I'm a little curious about. In some states, you have your tribal gaming commission. You're obviously following a lot of the guidelines laid out by the NIGC. But in some states where it's tribes operating, you still have some kind of state gaming commissions. Curious what that relationship, if it really varies on a state-by-state -state basis, what you've seen in regards to that. It, it really is. Depending on the environment in which we find ourselves, If we, I'll take a few states to quote-unquote pick on in the sense that these are the ones that I've seen the most diversity in their approach to regulating or being involved in Indian gaming. I'll start off with my home state of Oklahoma. When we first looked at compacting with the state back in 2004, there was a lot of discussion going on between the state and the tribes prior to the legislation being offered and then ultimately adopted. But I think it was the discussion that the state representatives really were guided and influenced by what they saw at the tribal level. What they saw was that tribes had a very robust regulatory scheme, if you will, in place. We've had regulations that we've been operating under for decades that really provided the basis on which we could then offer up new gaming offerings, class three type offerings to our patrons. So being able to look at what we did really influenced the state on how they designed their regulatory body, which was, and it's not necessarily a knock against the state, but it is fairly minimal. We have just a, around four individuals involved with our state compliance agency, not including the audit individuals that the state also calls in to review information from time to time. There may be more individuals involved, but as far as our state compliance agency, you're looking at roughly four individuals. Compare that to 
states like Arizona, where you have the Arizona Department of Gaming has a very extensive and well-staffed regulatory body that then goes out and works with and interacts with the travel regulators in that jurisdiction. So you have a very large state regulatory body operating in Arizona. And then in California, you're looking at in a, probably a whole different scheme. You have the California Gaming Control Commission and you have the California Gaming Regulatory Authority there. So you have two state agencies that are involved in what's going on in Indian country when it comes to the compacts between the states and the tribes. So we do have a wide variety of involvement, if you will, from state to state. You know, and not going into too much detail with other states, such as Washington and Wisconsin, you have very active state bodies there as well. But their relationship goes back to the type of legislation that led to the creation of those, those compacts and those gaming environments. So that really set forth what the state wanted to see out of its role within that compact. And then also what knowledge did they have of the travel regulatory schemes in place in their state? So I've, there's, there's just a, not one type of model out there that you can find that you're going to be looking at. We're operating in upwards of 29 states. You're going to have 29 different <laughs> approaches to Indian gaming regulation. And, in, and even in those states, some of those states, you might have the purely Indian gaming. And in some states, California, for example, you've got the tribal casinos, but you also have the commercial casinos. I'm sure that also impacts the makeup of the gaming commissions. No, th thank you for that kind of explanation. E even for me, I've been in tribal gaming, but I'm still learning the intricacies of the commissions and how they work. Speaking of which, can you tell us a little bit more about the mission of the NTGCR? And also you've mentioned a little bit of your role within that, but really just highlight the mission. Yes. You know, the National Tribal Gaming Commissioners and Regulators, I'll just use our, our very difficult to pronounce acronym, the NTGCR, was formulated back in the early, or excuse me, mid to late 90s. And it was a loose organization at the time that was just comprised of a handful of tribal regulators from across the country that met informally and really tried to kick off a, a national presence for tribal regulators that wasn't really available at the time. Gathered some steam and in 1999, the organization itself formed under a 501c6 designation and put forward its mission and its purpose, which is to provide education opportunities for travel gaming regulators out there and to provide a forum in which we can share information and hopefully leading to some consistent and really well-seasoned approaches to regulating Indian gaming. We do encourage tribes to establish relationships amongst themselves to, to really augment these types of these interactions, but we also offer a couple of different avenues for them to get to know each other, come together and, and get not only the training, but also get exposure to each other. And that's through the conferences that we have on a regular basis. We have two conferences a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. And through those conferences, we offer a variety of training for auditors, licensing individuals, compliance people, IT professionals, surveillance professionals, as well as our gaming commissioners and our appointed officials, elected officials to come in and learn more about what it really takes to run a gaming 
regulatory agency. We've since in the last few years offered up a few other avenues for tribal regulators to really gain some quick knowledge and gain a quick understanding of what it is regulators do. And that's through our certification academies that we take from, take an individual from the very beginning, the history of Indian gaming, how we got to where we are, to working through every facet of a regulatory body and getting the information and the tools that they would need to take back with them to apply to their gaming operation and hopefully make improvements on their efficiencies and their effectiveness whenever they are able to apply what they've learned at our conferences and seminars. Now, I've only had recently the pleasure of getting to to attend and speak at one of the NTGCR conferences. I mean, it. I love the setup, the framework of it. Uh, it had a pretty incredible turnout. So I'm curious, uh, obviously it was founded, uh, is this the 25th year? This is our 25th anniversary of becoming a formal organization. As I mentioned, we there was a loose organization in the mid-90s, but as a formal organization, we started in 1999 and we started off 2023 with our celebratory 25-year celebration for the organization. And we're going to continue throughout the rest of this year, offering some special information and special opportunities for tribes to get together. Well, for, first off, congratulations. That's incredible. I'm curious, since it has been that span of time and you've been involved with the organization for so long, describe to us where it's grown to. How many how many different commissions are involved now? I, I saw a couple hundred people there the last time I attended, but what has it grown to and how have you seen it change over the years? Oh, I'm only going to assume by saying that I've been involved with it for so long, that means you're saying you're, you've been around a way long time. <laughs> but that's fine. When I started, I was one of the younger guys in gaming regulation. Now I'm one of the older guys in gaming regulation. But it's been a great ride in the sense that when I first started going to NTGCR, as I mentioned, there was a handful of individuals that started this. And we met in an off room under one of the trade show floors at one of the National Gaming Association's conferences. And there was maybe 12 of us in the room at the time. And fast forward a few years to the early 2000s, when we first started having our conferences and seminars, we saw a greater influx of individuals. We had upwards of 70 to 100 people. And that at the time was just blowing our minds in the sense that, oh, we, we really got some steam underneath this. We had about a couple of dozen tribal associate members as a part of the formal organization. And over the years since then, I became chairman in 2006, and we had probably around 100 to 120 people at our conference at the time. And prior to the pandemic, we've been able to grow that up to 350 people, 350 travel regulators coming to our conferences. Since the pandemic, we've obviously seen those numbers decline, but we are back on the 45 angle increase of getting everybody coming back to our association members and our, our conferences are becoming more well attended. Our tribal membership has never really seen a decrease. We've always been around 65 to 70 tribal members of the organization, as well as our associate members. We have associate members that are not obviously tribal gaming authorities, but they are vendors and service providers that really have a great role to play within the regulatory environment. 
So we don't necessarily have a lot of the manufacturers being associate members at this time, but that is, that doesn't mean that we don't have manufacturers joining us at our operation, or excuse me, at our conferences, but by and large, our makeup is the, the travel regulatory centric vendors that are out there. And that's one thing I think that makes our offering so unique is that not only is our tribal member, our tribal regulators, the ones that actually offer the training and conduct the training, but we also get in experts in the field outside of the regulatory body, but that still have a strong tie to what it is that we, we do within the casinos. Yeah, I think that's one thing I really noticed at the last conference. There was, with all the different workshops and being able to draw from those associate members, there was always, in, in a lot of the sessions, a great combination of commissioners who have been doing it, who are doing cutting in different things, whether it's Seminoles or Pokagon, mixed with your allies of the world who are so mm -hmm. intertwined with, have done so much work in tribal country and are constantly also at that cutting edge as it comes to new regulations, new services, as we're dealing with sports betting and some of those upcoming technologies. That is one of the things that we had wanted to talk about with you today, just as one of the kind of hot topics in the industry right now with being sports betting. We, we wanted to hear your perspective as someone who has been a leader for so long now, as far as what lessons you've learned from the regulations that we've seen enacted across different states over the last five years since PASPA. And then also if you have any insight into what you think tribes should be aware of as more states start to approve sports betting. When PASPA was being considered by the Supreme Court and while the decision was still hanging out there, I started following the developments of what's being done out in the industry at large because there were those that were anticipating it to go in favor of repeal while others were saying, no, it'll never happen. But those that were looking at it in preparing for the decision to come down to repeal PASPA, what I saw at that time, and it's true still today, is that if the federal government had taken a look at its role, which I'm, I'm sure it did, but it really came down to the point where the federal government said that we're not going to get involved in this. I think that was a kind of a combination of, of things, but the the federal government decided to not provide an overarching set of rules and regulations that would be applicable to the states. And they left it up to the individual states to determine whether or not sports wagering or the effect of the appeal of PASPA would be something that their jurisdiction would want to take advantage of. So in the absence of having a single regulatory approach to this on the federal level, now the individual states, and by extension, depending on the state and whether or not it contains tribes within it, it has been left to those jurisdictions to figure out whether or not this is something that they want to take advantage of. And if it is, exactly what kind of environment do you want to set for yourself? You know, do you want to have a brick and mortar only situation where customers can only make those types of wagers at a physical facility? Do you want to open it up to online or mobile gaming to where they can make it in any part of the state that they that may be residing in? Or will it be a combination of both? Who knows? But the regulations themselves and finding the right mix of things to contain within a piece of legislation has been probably the most important task 
and one of the more frustrating tasks to really achieve because it's it's a situation where we can learn from other jurisdictions, particularly those that have operated for a number of years, such as jurisdictions in the UK and in Europe, to find out exactly what they've done and maybe apply it over here. But the big question that has been facing not only states, but tribes as well, is to figure out what do we want to design for ourselves in terms of this new gaming environment? And really coming down to a question of what kind of risk do we want to take, not only in in terms of the type of gaming itself, but all of the things that go along with that, the, any type of social implications, any type of political considerations that may be out there. What is it that we are comfortable with assuming? So when the legislators get together and decide whether or not they want A, B, or C, and they put that decision in a piece of legislation and then give it to a regulator to figure out how are we going to make this particular piece of legislation work, the, the regulations themselves that they develop are not necessarily, in my estimation, the big issue, because there are examples of different types of regulations for whatever scenario you may be facing. There, there's examples out there that you can look at and learn from, but the issue is really what is it that you, as that jurisdiction, what are you? What risk are you willing to assume in adopting that? And a key factor in making that regulatory system viable is going to be dependent largely on those types of guidance, if you will, answers that we are going to get from the legislation. I've seen instances where the jurisdiction has kind of rushed to get operations up and going and open faster than the adoption of some effective regulations. Sometimes the regulations follow the opening. And I've also seen approaches taken out there that bad regulation is better than no regulation. And I'm not sure if that's a, a good way to, to approach things, but depending on what you're, you're tasked with may largely dictate you know, exactly how you get those schemes in place. But once you get to that determination to find out what the extent of the regulatory system will need to go to really set out and achieve those goals set by the legislation and figure out just how strict our legislators want us to be or how loose our legislators want us to be, finding that balance between achieving those goals as well as allowing for the entry and the growth within the industry is something that is very difficult for regulators to find sometimes. And you don't want to be too tight in the sense that you really put very high hurdles for somebody to get over in order to get into the industry and then even higher hurdles for them to get over to stay in compliance with all the regulations that you have. You don't want to over-regulate. There are considerations that you're going to have to have in certain areas that will be more impactful than others. And the tide of the regulations is going to be something that is going to have indirect and ripple effects in the actual operation itself. A good way to illustrate that is to take a look at uh, whether or not you're going to have wager limit restrictions imposed, whether you're going to have advertising restrictions and to what extent you will have those types of hurdles put in front of any potential operator out there. But at the same time, you can't be too loose because it could be worse than having too tight of a restriction. 
problem gambling could flare up, inappropriate wagering, money laundering could happen. Those types of things, you know, creating big loopholes within the system could be more potentially harmful than it would be to have maybe a more stricter regulation. So trying to find that balance in in the time frame in which a regulator is given to get that done is is one that is probably one of our more trickier tasks. And so go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that some of the things that will guide what we do and really how we approach developing a regulation is going to be dependent also on the, the technology and the wagering mechanisms or the practices that are in place at the time. But we see those things really still growing. The U.S. industry itself, I think, is really still in its infancy in the sense that we don't have as much data or as much experience as some of our more internationally known jurisdictions to know whether or not if the regulations and the practices that we have are really what we need in terms of having policies and regulations, both again at the operator and the regulatory level. So there's there, there's two two pieces in there I want to touch on. One is you spoke to that variability of regulation of which there is, I think, a wide variation across all the jurisdictions that we've seen so far. You know, in, in lieu of regulation or in cases where there may be bad regulation, so to speak, are you seeing a kind of best practices start to form? Is there any kind of documentation or collaboration starting to be put out around at the tribal level? Is that something that NTGCR is discussing among its members? It is, actually. One of the things that in the past few years that we have really tried to emphasize is it takes one of our, one of our basic tenets from NTGCR, and that's learning from each other, establishing some common practices out there. And now that we have seen jurisdictions like the Mississippi Choctaw, tribes in New Mexico, tribes in Michigan, tribes in Washington, we're really seeing growth of tribal offerings in sports betting and in mobile online gaming as well. But we were we have seen a lot of attention and a lot of inquiry into just how can we as a new and emerging travel jurisdiction, how can we really get up to speed very quickly? And so when I, whenever I'm asked with that or faced with that question, I put that individual in touch with people at these jurisdictions that have had that experience already. And it is something that we encourage them to learn from those that have gone before them and hopefully be able to really expedite their learning curve but it is something that NTGCR itself is also very interested in making more available to our conference attendees simply because we're seeing such a huge ramp up in not only the number of states that are adopting legislation for sports betting or on, online wagering, but we're seeing an increased number of tribes as well getting into the arena. And when we have that type of growth, when we have that type of need for uh, information, it is something that we are going to respond to by saying, okay, we, we, have, we have very clear indications that not only we have more tribes getting into it, but we're seeing a great diversity in the, the approaches that are being taken by the, the various states. Not only that, but we also have an influx of 
providers and offers and service providers, things of that nature, things are developing very quickly with respect to this environment that we are going to have to respond to and get our tribal regulators up to speed on. So we are definitely taking a larger interest in not just the technology that goes into allowing and conducting the gaming activities themselves, but everything that goes behind that from the KYC type of technology for software, the AML software that's out there, looking at geofencing, looking at problem gambling algorithms and detectors, anything that might be able to be used by a regulator as a part of its overall responsibilities. We're going to be looking at everything under the sun when it comes to trying to get our regulators ready and prepared for that day when their tribal leader comes to them and says, we want to do this type of wagering. What will it take to get there and how long will it take to get there? We want to make sure that we are ready with answers when that day comes. I will say that's one thing I really appreciated about the NTGCR fall conference when I was there is the very open level of collaboration and just transparency with the challenges that tribes faced as they were starting to onboard these sports betting platforms, all of these new technologies. I think I saw the Soaring Eagle CEO with the Saginaw Chippewas, Pokagan, obviously, you know, talking what they've experienced there, so many others. So I'm looking forward to see what else comes from the NTGCR on there, but it was great to see such open collaboration and not looking at each other as competition, but a larger community to to work within. I think you really started getting into the technology piece and that probably tees up one of the, one of the next things we really want to ask you about. Sure does. <laughs> one of the questions that we wanted to understand, again, with your background in gaming commissions is how do you handle the vetting of some of those new technologies that are coming out to improve the processes around sports betting and compliance? Is that something that you guys do internally? Is that something you bring in consultants for? Just if you could shed some light on that process, that would be helpful. Okay. Real quickly, it's really dovetailing Sean's comment there. That's one of the things that we really like about and have is one of the benefits of being a regulator is that we are able to share openly and freely uh, the information that and experiences that we've had, both the good and the bad. And primarily, and, and it's going to sound we're focusing on the bad in the sense that we want to learn what pitfalls are out there and how we might be able to avoid those in the future. And one of the ways that we do that is by talking with those that have already done it, which helps us really learn that much faster. But one of the things that we've seen when we do that is that you know, there's a mixture of approaches that a tribe will take when it comes to really kicking off its its offerings out there. And some tribes have really taken it upon themselves to do a lot of things internally and have probably have fortunate to have individuals that are trained and experienced in those areas to help them navigate those waters. But I've also seen that a larger number of tribes bring in consultants to help them figure out what is best for their jurisdiction? Because you know, we right now are not necessarily the subject matter experts when it comes to sports wagering. There are others out there more qualified that can assist us with that. And by bringing those third parties in to evaluate the proposals that they get from, excuse me, from prospective partners really helps advance the ball much more quickly. You know, 
the same goes for whether or not the tribe decides to operate its sports book itself, or if they try to, if they want to bring in an outside party to assist them in that operation. So it, it has followed two different tracks, but I've seen a lot of, or I would say more of the direction being going towards bringing in some consultants to assist and also bringing in an outside party to help them get their offerings off the ground. Now, so, something I've seen with casino openings, the, like brick and mortar casino opening, sports betting aside, probably some years past is where tribes set up these management agreements where you do have those larger established, whether it's like a Boyd or Caesars, Penn Entertainment, maybe Pinnacle, right. who comes in, manages the operation. Maybe there's an X amount of years of that agreement as that as the tribe builds up that that internal expertise to, you know, that they can possibly eventually run the operation. Is there a similar kind of setup as you see, you know, them bringing in outside operators for their sports books, or has it been a different approach? By and large, I would say it's not necessarily been the management contract route that that most have gone. I think just by getting the expertise and the advice from those individuals and hopefully being able to do a lot of things in-house that they don't necessarily have to go the route of going before the National and Gaming Commission and looking for whether or not their agreement or their arrangement that they may have with the provider or the partner would be a management contract. Management contracts themselves are a lengthy process by which tribes and the prospective partner would have to be vetted by the NIGC. And it does take quite a while to go through with that. But one of the things I know the NIGC is seeing kind of an uptick in is whether their arrangement meets that criteria or not. And they do that through the form of declination letters, where a tribe poses a question and provides information to the NIGC, and they review it and either come back with, yes, it under these terms and conditions, it would be a management contract and you would need to go that route, or based on the information you provided and the, the documents in hand, it is not a management contract and you can proceed without any further action required by the NIGC. So... It comes down to how those agreements are structured to figure out whether or not they're going to go one route or the other. And it's those agreements that really kind of set the tone. And those are hopefully pieces that tribes can pick up from with others that have gone through this process to guide them and know what information is needed in order to get a long and lengthy review and approval process. So it sounds like those management contracts could really impact speed to market, which obviously yes. has been such a thing as each state starts to go live right now. We've spoken a little bit about evaluating <clears throat> sports betting products, but really post-pandemic, we've seen the role of technology and compliance and emerging products and services shift so much. We're now getting more mm -hmm. cashless options, digital payments. Obviously, you have the online sports book. You have, you know, you have the iGaming. Uh, how do you see commissions and operations evaluating the compliance technologies? Is there someone you, is this something you think they're actively vetting or should be vetting or have they taken a more conservative approach where they're not jumping into maybe all of these service offerings yet? This is something that if tribes are not already doing it, they should be simply because with the increasing 
number of people that we see entering the market at all in different levels, different avenues coming into the market. You know, we have that responsibility to go out and make sure that you know, what is available and what we might desire to use in our setting is is legal, is viable, and it's the, the best product that we can get. And the increasing number of vendors and service providers out there underscore the need to do that type of vetting and being able to take a look at whether or not you're going to have a long-term partnership or relationship with this company. Are they a viable group? Is their product the, the best that we can get? And it's something that tribes are going to have to, if they're not doing it, or if they're just doing it, I'll say partially doing it, they're going to have to seriously consider their investment into their operations. Again, regulatory and managerial, depending on, again, what type of environment they have in front of them. But they have people on both sides of the aisle from the operators and the regulators that are technologically minded, that are capable of understanding what is out there. But we are still not out of the woods of having outside expertise come in and help us guide us through that. But what I see is tribal operators and regulators really doing what we've done over the last four decades. And that is we learn the game, quote unquote. We learn the rules. We learn what's out there. We learn how the game is played. And then we become experts at it. Right now, we've only had a couple of years under our belt. Not a lot of tribes have gotten into this arena. But what we have seen is the ability of tribes to go out and take a look at, again, all the various products and services that are out there and separate the wheat from the chaff to figure out if this is going to be something that they are really wanting to, to incorporate into their environment. And as the and industry evolves, I, I think we're going to see that presence, if you will, and that ability for tribes to go out and do these types of vetting processes really bringing that more in-house and going back and looking at whether or not the regulations that they have need to be tweaked, whether or not there's a regulatory or excuse me, a statutory fix that might need to be taken into consideration. So yeah, I think right now the vetting that we do and the tribes that I've spoken with and I'm knowledgeable of, mm -hmm. they've done a very thorough job at going through and evaluating all the different services and products out there, not necessarily being overly cautious, but being measured in their approach to how they are going to make the decisions and not just one decision again, not just on the game, on the platform that they're going to use, but all various aspects of how we are going to operate and manage that type of gaming offering. And with all of these offerings, with every new emerging product and service, there's a new level of risk or new type of risk that mm -hmm. comes with each of those, right? As you put it, there's all of these compliance technologies coming forth. A lot of those technologies really sit on the operator side though, right? If we are talking about an anti-money laundering software platform like us, it's, it's the operator doing the work or the IDB, KYC doc verification or different aspects of like responsible gaming case management. It really, the technology sits on the operator side. So obviously they're a big part of that, that vetting process. Where do the commissions or tribal gaming agencies come in? Do they serve as 
guideposts? Are they directly involved in the vetting? Does Is it one of those things that, again, changes from tribe to tribe? How have you seen these procurement processes play out, if you will? Yeah, it's much like everything else in the sense that we see various approaches being taken. Even though the job of the regulator is very, I'll say, limited when it comes to the types of services and products that the operators choose to avail themselves of, that the, doesn't mean we're devoid of any role to play within that. Now, we don't, and it's not necessarily meant to be flippant, but we don't necessarily care who they do business with. Our job is not to make those business decisions. Our job is to make sure that whatever decision that they want to make and the product or service that they want to avail themselves of meets the criteria of the statutes and the regulations that are, of course, based on those statutes. If they can meet those requirements, then it's the decision is going to be up to the operators to figure out who they're wanting to enter into a relationship with. But we do have a level of responsibility to help and assist our operator counterparts out there. And hopefully the process by which those reviews are done by the operator, at some point along the way before the decision is made, will involve the uh, in advice from the regulatory side, just because that could stave off any potential delay that may be caused by a decision being made by an operator and then given to a regulator who then may find an issue with the, the agreement in hand. So it, it is something that if we can work collaboratively, again, not necessarily from the regulatory point of view to drive a managerial or an operational decision, but one to really be a resource to help them along the process so that we can avoid any unintended consequence that may be facing us by virtue of not being involved and not being able to provide guidance that could have otherwise been avoided. What are some of the risks or potential unintended consequences that you can see with the onboarding of those new products or services as a commissioner? Well, if we are looking at an agreement that requires certain types of information to be disclosed, if we're looking at the activities going back and forth between an, a service provider and the operation and sharing information, access to systems, things of that nature that may otherwise not be allowed for under regulation. Let's say, for example, a, a regulatory jurisdiction has it to where you know, there are no external access points to your system. You have to be mm. on site. You have to be within that jurisdiction to really evaluate yourselves of, the, of those systems. If we have a, a situation where we're allowing un, unfettered access and having the ability of third parties to come into our systems, we really take a look at whether or not that is a an advisable thing to, to allow. Exactly what kind of access will they have? Will we be able to control that? Will we be able to monitor that to determine whether or not the activity that they do while they have access to our system is appropriate? There, there are certain things, and it's not necessarily any one thing. It can be a, it could be a combination of things on how open we make ourselves to somebody that's outside, if you will, our jurisdiction. 
somebody from the outside wanting to come in exactly what are they going to be able to do? What do they, because operators and regulators, and it's going to be a shock to some, we don't always think alike. So <laughs> when the operators want to do something and the regulators say, whoa, wait a minute, what about this? What about that? There, the emphasis on security and compliance and integrity, and I won't say it is not shared by operations, but their viewpoint on it is different than the regulators. And when it comes down to it, if we were able to work together and make sure that we have a similar or same understanding of what those criteria are going to be, then we won't necessarily be faced with these situations. But by, we see it quite often where the operators don't attach a lot of significance to an activity that a regulator would. And if we were able to work that out prior to them sending this, that agreement, it would be a much better environment for us all to operate in. As an operational compliance person, I can assure you I've dealt with that similar pain point on many occasions <laughs> where a new product or service is offered in, in, in a way that hasn't been vetted and you're finding out after the fact. And it's just, it's so much harder to, to work backwards than it is to work proactively. It is. And one of the things that we try to do, and again, for the operators that may be listening out there, we do try to design our regulations to where we don't put unnecessary roadblocks in front of anybody. We don't want to put a regulation out there that would hinder the use of emerging technology, for example. We don't want to be so finite in our regulation that you can only use a very limited number of services or products to achieve that. If something new comes along, digital wallets is a good example. Cashless is a good example. All of these different uh, new ways of making financial transactions within your casino and your gaming environment are things that up to a few years ago really weren't paid that much attention to. Now that we're seeing a huge demand for those types of amenities, regulators everywhere are going to have to figure out how do we do this? And the best way that we can figure that out is talking with our operator guys. What exactly is it that you want? You know, because if there are needs out there and they fit within the statutory limitations set by our legislature, then how can we help you achieve that? Do we need to go back and look at our regulation? Because if it's, if it's limited, then maybe we need to look at modifying that regulation to allow for this type of, this type of transactions. Getting something that, that new and emerging technology is not necessarily a bad thing, but everybody has to understand that the regulations that are in place were written based on the technology and the practices available at the time. As that changes, we as regulators will be required to change as well. As, as begrudgingly as may, we may want to stay in the old ways, we have to go forward and adopt these new ways of thinking and, and take on this new way of looking at technology because we don't want to be the, the reason why our operations are hindered from generating any kind of revenue. And, and I'm, really, I'm really glad you made that point because it feels like there's just there's so many emerging technologies and products and services now. It seemed like for a time there was a little bit of a stagnation in innovation in the industry. And then with PASPA, with COVID also, which I think really helped springboard cashless and digital payments. It, it seems like 
new products and services and new takes on those products and services, whether bifurcating sports betting into these betting exchanges rather than these traditional sports betting platforms or these prop betting resale markets, all of these new things that are coming on. With that mindset change that you're talking about, where we're working more in these digital environments, is part of that mindset change, is there a need to revisit the regulatory frameworks to, to be more agile? Or is it a case-by-case -case basis of just updating those regulatory definitions of what products and services are allowed? I think it is something that we would really benefit, and we being tribes in general, would really benefit by being proactive and taking a look at what we might need to have in place. Again, going looking, looking into that crystal ball and figuring out what date it is that we will be faced to make this decision. If we were able to go ahead and put things in place now that would translate over into a more rapid response to answering that question, the better off that we're going to be. And I'll use this as an example because we've seen this happen in a number of jurisdictions where operators want to dip their toes into the sports betting or into the online gaming pond, so to speak. And they want to offer a, a social game or a quote unquote free to play game to get the name out there, get the brand recognized and get some learning experience of their own by operating something that is not within your traditional brick and mortar casino. If the travel regulators are brought on, even though this may not be considered gaming at the time, when the operators do want to flip that monetization switch, we would have the ability to be able to more quickly respond to the question of how soon can we get this up and running and start taking actual wagers. Now, not only would it help us in expediting that process, but it really gets us in the same boat in, in our learning curve with the operations to figure out whether the technology that they have, if they are able to flip that switch is going to be something that we can see easily transition over into being a part of our other regulatory environment components. So the way that we're approaching that and we being both operations and the regulatory side, the way that we're approaching that needs to be in a sense, hand in hand where we can make those types of those types of decisions a little bit more quickly. Jamie, thank you for all of your incredibly detailed responses and in and, and the education personally that I got today. Even working in tribal country for years now, there's always so much to learn and a better understanding to to gain about the tribes, how they operate, just how important the work of the commissions are and how wide ranging it is. Bef before we let you go today, do want you, if you're open to it, to just shout out the fall conference, what details you have, encourage people to come. If you want to encourage people to come to the workshops, want to open the floor to you to talk a little about that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The next conference that we're going to be having will be in Cherokee, North Carolina at the Harris Cherokee property there. And it's going to be in September. The dates are still a little bit in flux, so they will be announced via our website, which is ntgcr.com, with the full conference agenda and speaker lineup, hopefully to follow within the next couple of months. But we will be, again, offering up individual sessions where we are going to be bringing subject matter experts and industry leaders to come in and talk about all of these various things and some of the emphasis that we're going to be putting on 
this conference, similar to what we did with our last conference, there was a lot of interest in sports betting at the time. So we covered sports betting as a segment of the gaming industry, but we did not necessarily have a lot of ancillary topics associated with that. So I think we're going to be taking more of a look at some of the technology that we're going to be seeing and using when it comes to not only doing the sports wagering aspect in and of itself, but as I'm, as we're looking at all the other services and software products out there to help us as regulators use the digital tools that will be given to us to operate in this new environment. We're going to be talking a lot about that at our fall conference as well. We're, we're very excited about it. We are anticipating a very good turnout. And as I covered a little bit earlier, our 25-year anniversary celebration is going to start winding down as a part of our conference in the fall, but we will be continuing on, on our celebratory, our victory lap, if you will, for the remainder of the year. But we expect a lot of good things, not just the conference-wise, but we're going to have a, a few other events and get-togethers that I think would be very beneficial from the regulatory, excuse me, the tribal regulators perspective, as well as the associate member perspective of being able to be more involved and access to a lot of good regulators out there. That's a perfect wrap-up. Jamie, thank you again. Congratulations on 25 years again. That's incredible. I'm looking forward to the conference and I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Shannon, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks again for joining us today on Connected by Conversations. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast and by sharing Connected by Conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Visit connectby.com to learn more. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency. Thank you.